Let us pray. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Just a few weeks ago, I preached about Jacob's trickery and scheming, his betrayal of his brother Esau and of his father. Jacob seemed to have this relentless determination to get everything for himself, his dad's blessing, the lion's share of his inheritance. When Esau threatens to kill him, Jacob runs away as fast as his little feet will carry him. In that sermon, I skipped over a big chunk of the story in between on purpose to take you to the end where Jacob meets up with Big Brother only to be offered forgiveness and a hug. Well, today we're going to go back and look at part of the in-between story when the last thing Jacob would ever imagine is a happy ending. He's terrified. He has just run away into the wilderness to protect himself from his brother's wrath. It strikes me that in these stories, Jacob is awfully young to be so jaded, so manipulative, always trying to get ahead of everyone else, doing anything he can to get there. It seems cynical about any goodness in humanity, not particularly trusting in God. Jacob is cynical about everything and everyone. Everyone else must have an agenda. He thinks they must have a motive because he always has one. Perhaps we can understand Jacob's mindset because we today live in a time where cynicism abounds. I once heard a podcast in which Mohammed Farouz, a well-known composer of opera and symphony, was talking about what he called the age of cynicism. He said, among my generation, cynicism is no longer a bad word. It's being celebrated and often it's mistaken for intelligence. But cynicism isn't intelligence. It is the cause of missed opportunities as people close their emotional and intellectual pores to new experiences. It can be a dangerous, world-breaking state of mind. This is not about healthy skepticism. There was a time when people tried not to use the word hate. I remember as a little kid, one time I had somebody bully me on the playground. I said, I just hate them. And I remember my mom, don't you use the word hate. But now we hear people using it often and about people they barely know. On the other hand, saying that you love someone or you have trust in them is viewed by some in this age we live in today as a sentimental artifact of the past. I think this is why so many people in our world today tend to see a conspiracy hiding in every shadow when we are quick to suspect the motives of others distrusting everything, distrusting everyone, when we have no real faith in God or in humanity, we are lost in the wilderness like Jacob. That's where we find him today, isn't it? In the wilderness, lost, exhausted, far away from anything, 
with nothing but a dirt bed and a stone for a pillow. This is where all his conniving and scheming has landed him. Now in the Old Testament, dreams were thought to be a way that God sends divine revelation. We more often attribute dreams to having watched a scary movie or maybe eating too many spicy tacos late at night. But sometimes, dreams are the place where you face the things you have been running from or just avoiding thinking about all day. I remember once waking up in a panic because in my dream I had been running away from a wild animal and it was about to catch me and I was screaming but nothing would come out. I must have been thrashing around on the bed because the little dog at the end of the bed jumped up and cried. When I thought about it, I realized that I had been avoiding talking with someone who I really needed to talk to, and I figured out that I had been suppressing my fear that it wouldn't end well. After pushing myself to have the conversation, things were much better than I ever imagined they would be. When Jacob stops running long enough to sleep, you would think he would have nightmares about all that he had done and all of his fears about Esau. Instead, God uses that time to open Jacob's eyes to something he hasn't really considered before. To his surprise, the words he hears and the images he sees are of comfort, assurance, blessing, God's loving presence. There's this ladder he sees between heaven and earth and angels going up and down on it. Some translate the Hebrew word ladder as staircase or ramp. That last one makes me smile because I'm thinking of, of angels squealing wee in delight as they slide down the slide and bump into each other. Whatever it is, there is obviously a connection between heaven and earth that God is hoping Jacob will see for himself. There is a connection between us and God. In Jacob's day, people think of God as being far removed from us, so this image is astounding to him. To top it off, God is there with him, making promises and reassuring him, know that I am with you and will be with you wherever you go. Wow. In one night, Jacob goes from being this hunted, haunted, fearful man to knowing himself as blessed. When he wakes the next morning, he wakes up in other ways too. His basic circumstances haven't changed. He's still in the wilderness. He still did awful things. He still believes Esau is out there, still threatening his life. The difference is he has discovered a deeper reality beyond the surface of things, that God is there in all the daily ups and downs of our lives, in our most fearful places, in our most unexpected places. Jacob's cynicism is transformed into a newfound trust in God. He realizes that God has sought him out and found him, meeting him, promising to be with him, even though he has been a self-centered, egotistical, conniving jerk. Friends, God's grace is pure gift. Not something we earn, not something we deserve. It is simply given out of the deep and abiding love of God. And within that love, God has a dream for Jacob's life. <coughs> God has a dream for your life and for my life, too. 
That dream is what one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin, talked about, a word that appears in our text from Romans today, predestination. I can think of few words that are more misunderstood. Often when somebody finds out I'm a Presbyterian pastor, the first thing they will ask is, oh, you're a Presbyterian? Aren't you those folks who believe in predestination? Really? The problem is that people confuse predestination with predeterminism as if we have no will, as if God determines everything that we do, as if we're marionettes, God manipulates by our strings to perform every aspect of our lives according to the whims and dictates of a controlling God. I wouldn't believe in that either. John Calvin was actually overwhelmed, like Jacob was overwhelmed, by the reality that God abides with us and with all creation. Calvin is overwhelmed that we are called and loved and redeemed in Jesus Christ just for being who we are, children of God. We are destined to be forever loved. <coughs> As Ken Kovacs explains, the idea of predestination or election is not that God chooses some and not others, in the biblical meaning, God is bound to each of us by being bound to Jesus Christ. The 20th century Swiss theologian Karl Barth tried to clear up some of the ways people had misunderstood Calvin. He believed that God's yes in Christ includes all humanity. Each of our lives is rooted in the gracious will and the intentionality of God. That is a source of hope, an amazing gift. I think that people confuse themselves by trying to talk about God's plan for my life or God's will for my life. Instead, we simply open our hearts to what this loving, generous, amazing God dreams for us. We do the best we can to bring the love and light of Christ into the world around us, knowing that following in that path is the best way that we can honor God's dream. Sometimes we are astounded and awestruck when we have moments of clarity, times when we recognize the presence of God, especially where and when we least expect to. I love how Jacob just seems gobsmacked when he breathlessly proclaims, surely the Lord was in this place and I didn't know it. He takes that uncomfortable stone pillow on which he slept and turn it, turns it into a pillar, a monument. He calls the place Bethel, rather Bethel, which means house of God. No, Jacob didn't build a temple there. He was marking a moment when God showed up in the last place he would have ever dreamed before that night. That also happened for a man named Chuck Colson. If you were alive in the early 70s, or have read the history of the Watergate scandal under the Nixon administration, you will remember that name. He was an attorney and an advisor who served as special counsel to the president and was known by all the parties as the hatchet man, the guy who would destroy political opponents 
by any means necessary. He served a prison term after pleading guilty to obstruction of justice. Only it was in prison that Chuck discovered his life, discovered God's dream for him. God was in that place, and he had not known it. You see, he found himself increasingly drawn to the idea that God wanted him to use his imprisonment for a purpose and do something to help those that he would leave behind when he got out. He started mobilizing churches to minister to the prisoners. He founded something called the Prison Fellowship, which is still our nation's largest Christian nonprofit ministry serving prisoners and former prisoners and their families. He believed that someone, that someone who has committed a crime and is paying the price doesn't have to forfeit his or her God-given dignity. Although Chuck died in 2012, the ministry he started is still bringing God's love and compassion, still bringing those things into the lives of people who feel lost, and downtrodden and hopeless in our nation's prison system. Cynicism would posit that there is no hope for people in what seems like such a God-forsaken place, that there are no Bethels left, that if God was ever present in this world, God has now abandoned it or never cared in the first place or doesn't even exist. Yet the Prison Fellowship is one of countless examples that God is here, and is with us when, wherever we go, wherever we find ourselves. Even in the midst of life's biggest troubles, deepest tragedies, there is that deeper reality of love and beauty that we notice if we pay attention. As we hear in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Centuries after the Lord says to Jacob, I will be with you and keep you wherever you go, a child was born in Bethlehem. A child was born we call God with us, Jesus. Jesus lived our lives, experienced our wilderness places, all the pain and the joy, the kindness and the cruelty that we experience. And because of Christ, we know deep in our being that we are never alone. Ask yourself from time to time, how can I, in my own life, in what I say, in what I do, and how I live, how can I share God's love for others so that they will know it too? How can I live into God's amazing dream for me? To God be the glory. Amen.